Raise your right hand and repeat after me. I say your name. Do you solemnly swear? It's important to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and to bear true faith and allegiance to the same. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the American Vet Podcast. Uh, I got a special guest here for the listeners. I have my grandfather, who is an Army veteran from, he served from 1966 to 1975. He was a heavy equipment mechanic, and he he fought in Vietnam, and he went also to South Korea during the peacetime. Papa, how you how you doing? I'm doing good today. Uh, I enjoy being here. I really enjoy having my grandson ask me to be on the show. As he said, I served from 1966 to 1975. So I did eight and a half years in AIC. I was in Vietnam, 1967, I said, in attack in 1968, and that was no fun at all. No, I don't, I don't, I don't think any of it was any fun. <laughs> oh, don't get, don't get me wrong. The parts of Vietnam that I don't want to forget, and it's other parts, like any other Vietnam veteran, which I could forget. Because when you come home, you still got to live with what you done. Whether you like it or not, our government sent us over there, and we did the job that we were asked to do. We asked no favoritisms, and we did what we could do. But coming home is a whole new, a whole new ball game for us old boys. That's right. So, pre-warn the uh, the the listeners out there that you are from Vermont and you do have a thick accent from Vermont. I understand you completely. So hopefully the listeners will be able to understand you as well. Um, but if they can't, I think they'll, they'll be able to figure it out. But how would you, how did you, why did you join the army? I come home from work at warehouse one night. I lived in a little town called Bethel up there, about central part of Vermont. Okay. And I have me a letter in the mail <laughs> and it says, Said in the letter, and a lot of guys my age got them letters that said, congratulations from your friends and neighbors. You've been selected for military service. So they sent me down to Manchester, New Hampshire. Went down there and went through a physical. Came back home. Oh, probably a month later, I went back down there, and they took six or seven of us into a little room. And I knew then... I was headed for the U.S. Army. Yep. I did my basic training at Fort Dix, New Jersey, and I did my advanced individual training at Fort Belvoir, Virginia. Okay. 
So how, what was your initial reaction when you got that letter in the mail? Like, were you, did you always know you're going to go to the military? Or this was kind of like, oh, I'm having way too much fun as a kid. Well, my initial reaction is because I had a brother that was already in. I told my mother I couldn't to go to Canada because we do still got some relatives up there. And my mother looked at me and you know how my grandmother was. Oh, yeah. She looked at me and she said, what makes you one bit damn better than your half-brother Jim <laughs> that fought in Korea? Your brother Lonely that will probably be headed for Vietnam. Your yeah. uncles that fought in World War Two. She says, if you go to Canada, don't ever dock in my door again. Yeah. So I decided <laughs> I'd go in the Army. Yep, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now you're in the Army, and you went, now where was your, so heavy equipment mechanic, um, so that's what, working on tanks and diesel engines and stuff? I was mainly a bulldozer, repairman, graders, that heavy, same kind of equipment that we use out there every day, yep. and I took an extra year to be guaranteed that, because I didn't think it'd be much much work for an infantry man or a sharpshooter when I get out. <laughs> well, I mean, if you work for Hillary, you're probably going to be getting a lot of money there. <laughs> well, if I worked for Hillary, I'd probably be in prison for shooting her. <laughs> <laughs> or at least making it look like everybody's committing suicide nowadays. But, uh, <laughs> all right, so so where was your first duty station? After basic and AIT. I went to uh, Vong Tau, Vietnam. I okay. spent about three weeks there. Then they sent me down to the Metcon Delta to work down there with my unit for a while. And that reminded me a lot of the Louisiana swamp land. <laughs> okay. So at right out of boot camp, now you're in you're in you know, you're in Korea and no, I'm in Vietnam. Or Vietnam, yeah, sorry. Yeah, you're in Vietnam, and everything that's going on in Vietnam, are, are you still thinking that was a good decision to go into the Army, or now you're kind of kicking yourself in the ass? Well, the decision had been made. I didn't like being there. Mm -hmm. I had, and then I found out that my older brother, Lindley, was over there at the same time. He was a... At that time, he was a staff sergeant. He could have come home, but as soon as I rotated out, that it sent him right back. Yeah. And one thing I did to get, Lindley and I did get to see each other four or five times during the six months we were there together. So that was one that was one highlight of being over there. Yeah. What, do you, what did you think of, so like obviously I've never been to Vietnam, well, what, what, what do you think about the culture and the women and, and the booze and all that? I mean, was it a big, uh, big fun place or not? Well, when you get to the booze and the women, <laughs> if you get enough booze into you, anything seems like a lot of fun. <laughs> there was mornings I woke up that my hair hurt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the women, they were out there for one thing. They yeah. sold their bodies for money. They were providing a service, you might say. Yeah. Another thing over there, when I was over there, 
and I, I see a lot of guys get hooked on marijuana and cocaine and that because you can buy it right on the street corner. Yeah. And I, I admit, I tried pot a couple of times, but I couldn't stand the taste of it or the right. smell. Like I've said, it's probably a good thing because <laughs> I'd have probably been one of the biggest potheads they ever see. <laughs> Yeah, you would have made uh, Merle Haggard look weak, huh? <laughs> I'd have given it to him and Willie Nelson. I'd have given it a good shot. <laughs> okay, so now as a, uh, so you're over there now. You make a lot of good, good buddies and stuff like that. And uh, I had some really close friends. Okay, and that, that is something that's hard because I block contact with. Well, most of them have died from Agent Orange and that. Yeah. And I had a big colored buddy out of, uh, he was down around Alabama. I can't remember the little town. And I was what they called Barrett's Agent. Okay. Come in out of the field and we got hit with a mortar attack. Well, I was supposed to be the last one. That's a sad. Yeah. I was supposed to be the last one in the bunker. And he shoved me in. I thought he tripped and fell. Yeah. I reached back, and he had touched shrapnel on the bat, and I, I felt that was meant for me. Yeah. But I've never forgot him. Yeah. What was uh, maybe one of the one, if I were to ask you, can you tell me one good story that's really like, that you, if there's any story out there that you actually look back onto to just get a good laugh at or, or anything like that, like a good story that you, you remember and you're like, I can always go to that one place, that one time in my life, and whatever's going on now is going to make me happy. It's going to make me laugh. I don't know. At the time, I didn't think this was very funny. I flying on a C-123 out of Toy Wife and being down visiting my brother, flying back to July, and loaded with cargo, dynamite, and everything else on it. We were flying long, and all of a sudden, we hit a dead-air pocket. Well, we dropped about four or 500 feet, it felt like. Yep. I mean, straight down. <laughs> then the plane took off. And I thought, I looked up, and I said, Lord, I'm coming home now. Yep. But afterwards, I got thinking about it. At the time, it wasn't funny, but as I got thinking about it, I, I started laughing. Yeah. And it, it was really an experience that I've never had and a feeling that I've never had. Yeah. And I don't, it's something I'll never forget. Yeah. <laughs> so it I, did scare the shit out of me. <laughs> I mean, I guess I would be, uh, I'd be checking my underwear too after that. <laughs> So I'm going to try to have you tell a story without me actually giving too much away of it, but your promotion where you weren't, you weren't properly dressed, we'll say. Well, I got called into the company commander's office one morning Yep. and I was hung over, <laughs> quite hung over, <laughs> I might say. And it was a Saturday morning. So all I had on was a pair of, uh, old army shorts and these are army pants I cut off they weren't authorized and I 
T-shirt covered with diesel-filled motor oil and uh, my hat. Well, the first sergeant looked at me, and he says, you're reporting to the company commander looking like that? And I says, well, I just got up top. <laughs> I said, and they told me get right over here. It was very important. Yep. So I guess the one first thing I laid my hands on, well, I forgot that I had a, still had an open can of beer in my pocket. <laughs> well, the company commander come out, and he was from, he was from up in, uh, I believe he was out of Albany, New York. Okay. Really a nice, I really liked him as a company commander. He was a no bullshit officer. Yeah, do what you're told and I'm not going to mess with you. Yeah. Kind of thing. So I reported to him and he looked me up and down and he said, what the hell rank are you right now? Well, I'm a spec four. He says, I don't see no stripes on you. He says, are you bucking for PFC? <laughs> I said, well, I'm not trying to, but I told report to you immediately as quick as I could. Well, he read me the riot act for being out of uniform and that, and then he told me, he said, the reason I wanted to see you, you're going on a trip. <laughs> he said, and I want to give you your E-5 stripes. I said, sir, where am I going? He says, you're going back to the field. I said, so get come in from the field. He said, well, we got two dogs that brought down. He says, when you get sobered up and get dressed, he said, we'll send you back out. <laughs> I'll never forget that, though. And it was kind of funny because they always do stuff to try to shake you up before yep. they promote you. <laughs> and most of the time, it's usually get, get good, clean, fun. So after you got promoted, did that beer can come out of your that beer come out of your pocket? It did. When I get outside, <laughs> I finished it. I never, number one, believed throw a good can of beer away. No, and that's that's the truth. I remember <laughs> your your fiftieth birthday. I remember that day. I mean, my uh, so when I was a, I was a younger kid. For the listeners out there, my grandfather, he uh, you're definitely known for being able to hold your own when it comes to drinking and. Uh, it was your 50th birthday, and your goal that day was to drink 50 beers. Well, yeah, I got to have a goal in life, and at that <laughs> time, drinking was one of my goals. Yeah. I did pretty good from what I hear. Yeah, yeah you were on your way to get your 50th beer, and you you, you just hit the kitchen floor. <laughs> like, I was, I, was, I was laughing, but I also felt sorry for you. I was like, because you were, you were almost there. <laughs> you were almost there, but you just... Another 20 feet, you would have had your 50th beer in your hand. <laughs> well, I've been known to drink sociably. Yeah. I was known to drink to my nerves were steady. <laughs> and usually I didn't have to think too hard for a reason. Yeah. But I was so glad that I quit. It's been probably a little over 20 years mm -hmm. since I quit. And it made your grandmother happy because she had died wanting me to quit drinking, but she never really pushed the issue. Yeah, because you weren't never, now you were never, you were never abusive. You were never uncontrollably drunk. You always, it seemed for me like, you know, you would have your coffee in the morning and the rest of the day you'd drink beer. And that's what you did every day. So you were able, you know, you're, um, what do you call it? You were a, a working alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> And there are such things as functional alcoholics. Yep. 
I don't know. I, I couldn't put down 50 beers. <laughs> I mean, I, I do, I do might quit a bit of drinking, but I couldn't, uh, I would never be able to, to hold up to your, your standards. <laughs> well, you got to set your standards high if you're going to have standards. And one of the things I learned in the military, yep. you're in there to do a job. That's right. You may not like the job that they tell you to do, but one thing I learned, you try to do the job to the best of your ability. Mm-hmm. And they don't, they don't uh, screw with you. That's right. You told me when I was young, it doesn't matter what I do in my life. Just be the best at it. Whether I'm a shit shoveler, you be the best goddamn shit shoveler there is. That's why I was raised. We come from a, my family was poor. Yep. But I didn't think we were poor. There was always food on the table. We always had to work hard to make ends meet my mother was a very hard working yep. woman and i got a little story i'll tell you on that how her punishment went <laughs> i was probably 12 13 maybe 14 years old and we heated with wood in the old house we had one very well insulated yep. you could set a bucket of water on the wood stove and it would have a coating of ice on it in the morning <laughs> But my mother would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and start the fires in the wood stove and the chunk stove so our kids wouldn't have to get up in the cold house. Yep. So she says to me one night, she says, you bring a kindling wood in? Yep. Nothing else was said. 4 o'clock in the morning, she's up there waking me up. I ain't got no kindling wood. I reached for my pants, and she said, boy, you don't need them. Nope. <laughs> Went downstairs, reached for my boots. She says, I want my kindling wood, and you ain't got time to put them on. Now, in January in Vermont, it was somewhere probably 25 to 30 below there with four or five inches of new snow on the ground. It didn't take me long to get the kindling wood. <laughs> no. My mother never run out of kindling wood again. She didn't scream. She didn't holler. She didn't beat me. Yep. That was her way of getting my attention. Yep. And that's the same way she told me if I went to Canada, don't knock on her door. And she met it. That's right. We went to a family reunion one time with you. And this is how I know that that, that Kindlingwood story, that moment in time, stick with you all the way through. So when we went to a family reunion one time, it was me, my cousin Brian, and you. And once we got there at her house, you looked right at us and you said, boys, you're going to want to set that tent up. And I was like, well, we'll do it later. And you told us, listen, I'll help you right now, but I'm not helping you later. You're going to want to set your bent, your tent up. And we said, nah, we'll do it later. Well, listeners that night, me and my cousin slept on top of our tent because we couldn't figure it out. And it was raining. And ever since then, I, I, the first thing I do to when I get to a campsite now is just I set my tent up. I get my, my means of sleeping down. That's the way that I have trained and taught, tried to teach my grandson. Mm-hmm. You learn by making a mistake. Yep. It's okay to make a mistake once, but if you make that same mistake twice, something is wrong. Yep. It's the same way as when I was stationed in South Korea. Yep. I did it, did my time in Vietnam, and I got out 
1969 home. There was no work up there in Vermont. I couldn't find a job. I found a job and I worked construction for about 35 days out of 60 days because of the rain. Yeah. I told mother I was going back in and she was very upset. Yep. Because she was scared I was going back to Vietnam, but I threw it another okay. year of it. Yep. Which I actually tell you the truth, I felt safer over there at that time than I did being at home. Yep. Not because of the way the students was carrying on uh, the demonstrations and everything against the Vietnam veterans and that. Yeah. So I went down Fort Devon, went back in, spent two years down at Fort, or a year at Fort Benning, Georgia. Some of you old timers been down there at Fort Benning, and I was stationed out at Sand Hill, and there ain't nothing out there. Yeah. Go down Columbus, Georgia, and there'd be signs in the restaurant saying, Vietnam veterans not welcome. Mm. That made us, didn't make it feel too good because we supported that friggin' town. Right. So I got my orders go go second division over in Korea. I said, well, got to be better in Georgia anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I went over there, 19, I believe it was about 1971. Yep. I got over there and I'm looking around. I'm up at Blue Lancer Valley. And I'm looking around at the huts and everything. And I said, man, this is a poor country. I got thinking about it, and I said, it's only 17 years after the Korean War. Mm-hmm. Well, I run into a one officer I knew over there, and I work in heavy equipment up there at Blue Lancer Valley and driving a 10-ton rocker. Okay, yeah. And he says, a couple of weeks, you're going to be driving trailer truck for me. I knew I'm out of Port Bend in Georgia. I said, yeah, right. <laughs> He was a W-4. Okay. So that about the same as a light colonel. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Cause- so a couple of weeks went by, company commander called me in, and he says, you're going over to Camp Casey. You've been assigned over there to the headquarters 2nd Division is moving over there, and you're going over there as a truck driver, trailer truck driver. In the recovery division. Yep. And I did that for 11 months over there, running nights and that. Okay. And I had a lot of fun because <laughs> I'd get up to Camp Casey. I didn't have to pull no guide duty or CQ or anything because I was driving truck. Right. Get down to Pusan, non-load. I couldn't come back up through because I didn't have time. I wouldn't get the salt at about 6 o'clock in the morning, and then I couldn't get through, so I'd have to wait and leave like 10 o'clock at night. Yep. Well, most time, I had a cooler on the front seat of the truck. <laughs> most time, it had beer in it. Yep. So I drank steady just about <laughs> all the time. Well, I'm coming up Pusan Highway, and Back in, I don't know how it is now over there, but back in, military trucks was only supposed to run 30 miles an hour. Okay. And I headed up to the DMZ to unload a D7 in a backhoe. Had them both on, we called them dragon wagons. They were low beds. 
Okay. Yeah. I had an old 10 ton track. I had a 330 Cummins with a five and a two in it. I'm coming up Pusan Freeway and I'm running late. Of course, little Korean girl's fault. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I, I, over, I fell asleep in the hoot. She didn't wake me up as quick as she should. So I had my foot right into it. Yeah, it sounds like that uh, she was and, pretty tired herself. Yeah, I think she was. Were you guys walking around on the beach all day? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I swung out and I passed this staff car. Uh-oh. I knew it was a staff car. Yeah. I, all of a sudden, I see the lights start blinking. I says, you got a chain dragging or something? So I pull over and stop. Out climbs a two-side general. Uh-oh. I says, oh, shit. <laughs> So I stood there and that, and he, he asked me what my reason for doing 55 mile an hour and a 35, and I told him I, I had to get through Seoul before 6 o'clock in the morning. Yep. He asked me company and everything, and I told him. Well, I get back to Camp Casey, motor sergeant come out, he said, you wanted up at the battalion headquarters immediately. He says, they want you in there now. I says, I need change fatigue. So he said, no, you don't have time. So I walk into the, go up and report into the battalion headquarters, and here's yep. that two-star general there. Company commander was there and that, and, and the battalion commander was there, and the first sergeant, and battalion sergeant major. Okay. So I reported in, you know, back by ports is ordered, sir. Yep. General says, that's your driver right there. Ah, shit. He was speeding. I says, he said, we need to do something about that. You got these guys out there driving like that. And the hell of it is, you want nobody but me and him on the road anyway. Right. He says, got guys out there driving like him, putting the hammer down, driving like that. We need to do something about it. Colonel says, yep. He says, I agree with you. He said, but he is one of my best drivers, my best, hottest working man. General says, I don't cut no damn dice for me. And I says, here goes my E5 stripe. Yep. It all said and done. And I only had a month left from home. They handed me a safe driving award for driving 11 months with no accidents, which is almost unheard of over there. Yeah. But like I say, I'm running night, so it wasn't a lot of traffic. Right. And they give me that award with a driver's medal oh, perfect. on it and that. And the two-star says, earning in your 201 file, it's going to be a letter for me stating what an outstanding job you've done for the second division while you've been stationed over here. And I sent my mother a copy of that letter. Awesome. And she ha had it hung up on the wall for a long time. Perfect. And I asked that about, you know, in civilian life, them letters don't mean anything. Right. But in the military life, they go in your 201 file, and when promotion time comes, yeah. They're looking at that 201 file, and you see the, they see these letters in there, and, that, and it kind of boosts you up a little. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, I mean, 
And I know you're, you're, you're talking back in, you know, 1966 through 1975, but I mean, that still stands for the young men and women that are out there today. I mean, you, you go in there, you go in there for a reason. Don't ever lose sight of that and, and just do be the best shit shoveler you can be. Uh, nowadays you got to, I hold a lot of respect for, uh, Afghanistan and, uh, Kuwait vets and that. I know a lot of them that have come home. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest things we got to stop and realize with these guys coming back, one of the biggest things is a is PTSD. Yep. I had it. I still got it. I was a very angry soldier when I came back from Vietnam. Yeah. With I got spit on in California at the airport. I had people calling me names and that. And I was very angry. Yeah. But I still did my job as a soldier. That's right. And I was taught, well, they got their rights and that. But these young guys, uh, young men and women that are come back from Afghanistan and over and over there, that are, they are defending their country. They are keeping them people out of here. I mean, that coronavirus is bad enough. But what would happen if they went over there, keeping the them people from coming over here, setting car bombs and everything off? Exactly. And people don't stop to realize when they when you see one of them vets with their leg blown off, mm. the prosthetics, or they come home with brain damage, it's not only the men and women serving that go through what they are. They also put their families, their wives. Everything. Their wives will wind up with PTSD from what they've been through. And if you talk, if one wants to talk, and I've been to PTSD training with the church I go to and that, and you just sat back let that soldier talk to you. He's yep. venting. Yep, exactly. And you don't try to tell him how to correct it. You right. listen until he's ready to ask you for your advice and help. Yep. And, and like I say, I hold one hell of a lot of respect for them young men, women that are doing a, it's a thankless job. Exactly. And I... Like I told you, David, when you went in the Marine Corps, a dead man makes a bad pillow to sleep on at night. That's right. So for the listeners out there, I think I said in an earlier episode or whatnot, but I remember a conversation me and you had that when my grandmother found out through (laughs) the grapevine that I, I joined the Marine Corps a year after my mother passing, she called my recruiter and telling them all, you know, he has epilepsy, he has asthma and everything else. He can't, he's not going to be able to go through. And my recruit, my recruiter asked me, he's like, do you have seizures and asthma? And I said, Nope, <laughs> Nope, I'm good to go. I remember that conversation me and you had, it was, you know, you go to boot camp, and you better finish boot camp. And if you come home for any other reason, besides broken leg or, a uh, uh, no shit, medical reason 
you're not going to have any any trust in me. I'm not going to do anything for you. You're pretty much what you were saying is I was a piece of shit if I went to boot camp and I just quit. You know, I made the commitment and it's not about me anymore. It's about the brothers and sisters that I'm going to be with, all the training and everything else like that with them. Well, when you went in boot camp, I was concerned. I know what the Marine, how the 16 weeks at the Marine Corps boot camp could be. Yep. I had seen it because we had Marines taking training at Fort Benning with us for, or at Fort Belvoid yep. for their AIT for heavy equipment mechanics. And I, I talked to a lot of them. I knew a lot of Marines in both Vietnam and Korea. Yep. And a lot of us were drafted. We had no choice. Nowadays, young soldiers have got a choice. And young men and women have got a choice whether they want to serve in the military. Yep. And the reason I told you, if you get down to Paris Island, you say, oh, this ain't what I wanted. And you said, I'm dropping out. I wouldn't understand that. Right. Because I thought that I had impressed on you yep. uh, and tried to instill on you what was the proper way of doing things. If you had to come home with a medical discharge, I'd have shook your hand and said, David, at least you give it an honest try. Right. And you did. You've come a long way from that little shithead kid. Yeah. 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 I remember. So I graduated and, and for the, for the listeners out there that don't know this, um, for the, the Marines out there, you know, this, um, you have a ceremony one day, um, after you do the family run, which is you just run around the, the base and family looks at you running around all the damn day. Felt like all day. I don't know how long it is, but <laughs> you get, you get through a ceremony where you actually earn your EGA, your Eagle globe and anchor your, that's the Marine Corps symbol. And so mine was indoors. We were in kind of like a, uh, I almost want to say like a, an airplane bay in a sense with some bleachers and stuff like that. And we're all formed up and they have this big ceremony for us to get our EGA. Now, mind you listeners, at this point, my grandfather, you know, he was playing this, I don't know if it was actually him or my grandmother, whoever came up with this idea, but some, they were playing a sick joke on me. I'm about to graduate boot camp. <laughs> My grandfather has a, a lot of influence on me on joining the military. I was going to join the military prior to 9-11 attacks anyways. My grandfather has a lot of influence on me on that. And I was kind of like, oh, I just want him to be there. But my grandmother was sending me letters saying, hey, he, you know, he's got to work. You know, you know how your grandfather is. He's a workaholic. He's going to work 80, 90 hours a week for the rest of his life. So I was like, okay. So I spent $65 on a bus ticket to go from Paris Island back home. So I was, I was already set to just get on a bus and come home and then celebrate. So during the ceremony, I get an EGA and, and the bleaker in the bleachers, I see my brother, he's standing out on me as a, as a sore thumb because my brother is actually wearing my clothes, but that's just the way he is. He doesn't, he doesn't feel and look and, and, and live his life the same way as me and my grandfather. But, so I saw my brother and I thought to myself, what the hell is he doing here? And then once I saw you, it changed everything because for you to come all the way down there for my graduation, you're not going to miss it. I was kind of mad. 
because I was like, I just wasted sixty five dollars. <laughs> but here I am. I'm I'm a young I'm a young guy just got out of boot camp, and I can I couldn't spend a lot of my money because you only got one two days a month or so to go to the commissary to get the stuff that you needed anyway. So you you know, and unfortunately for me, I ended up getting a shin splint when I was in boot camp. So I did almost kind of a two tour deal in boot camp, but. So I had all this money. So I was like, I don't even care about the 65 bucks. You're here and everything else. And I remember going out to your, the rent or ve- the rental vehicle that you guys had. And I remember you looking at me going, um, would you like a beer? <laughs> I said, well, you know, if, if one appeared in front of me, I'd probably would drink it. And you would open, you open up the rent a car trunk and there was a cooler of beer, <laughs> ice cold beer. Now I haven't had a beer. I went to boot camp in April and I didn't go to Okinawa, Japan until November. So now we're looking at, it was probably like August by the time I got out. So I haven't had a beer and everything else. And my, you know, my brother's saying, Hey, you want to have a cigarette? And there he was with a lit cigarette and I'm having a cigarette and everything else. And my kill hat. So for the listeners out there, a kill hat is your drill instructor that is literally there to do what his name is called. He's just there to inflict pain on you. And then we also have a knowledge that's going to teach you you know, your M16 and the ways of the Marine Corps. And then you had your senior that just looked over everybody. My kill hat is standing there and I'm standing there and I'm, I got a cigarette in my hand and I got a beer in my other hand and we're on the parade deck. <laughs> we haven't even left yet. And I remember the conversation that you had with my kill hat and you, you telling me like, I'm sorry, I sent up, sent this, this, this dirt bag down here with you. Did you fucking fix him? <laughs> <laughs> and my kill hat. I mean, what did my kill hat say to you? <laughs> I'll say you back a little further than that. David yep. worked for me out in New York for the company I worked for. And during the day, we want father and grandson. He was just yep. another deckhead. That's it. <laughs> and I told him one morning, to get up and come to work. He lolly gagged around. Well, I want in a good mood anyway. I had about 80 hours then, and it was hot like it is. Now I'm miserable. And he looked at me, and he says, I ain't going to work today. I says, either you're going to work today or you're going down to the bus station and go home. Well, he made a little mistake, and he told me I couldn't do that. <laughs> I carried his ass down to the bus station put him on uh on a bus trailway and sent him to northampton yep the owner of the company asked me well, where's david at i said he t- i told him get around he told me he wasn't going to work and i told him he's going home <laughs> i said and there's three four others if they don't shape up i'm gonna send home <laughs> i says i'm not in a good mood today yep so when the drill sergeant, I told the drill sergeant that, drill sergeant says, oh, after a couple of days, he come around to my way of thinking. <laughs> I said, well, I'm sure glad you got his attention. Yep. <laughs> but it was 39 years that August when he graduated boot camp out of uh, Paris Island. 30, he graduated 39 years after I graduated boot camp out of Port Ditch, New Jersey. Yeah, my wife and I had talked about it. My youngest daughter and her ex-husband wanted to come down, <laughs> but neither one of them had a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. So I wound up 
renting a car and everything. Yeah. But we got and, our use out of that car on the oh, way yeah. back. <laughs> but they wanted to leave Wednesday morning, come down. They wanted to see the, in, well, they called it an inspirational run, Marine run, the life run. They rang all the bells in the battalion yep. night. So I told him, I, oh, we'll leave Wednesday. I said, nope, we're going to leave tonight, run down to New Jersey and get a room. Yep. I said, because I know what will happen. We won't get out of here to noon tomorrow. I said, we won't get down there from Mass to Paris Island. It's uh, about 14 hours driving yep. time. If Yeah. Yep. Normal driving time. <laughs> well, we get down into... Woodbridge, Virginia, and it took me three hours through Woodbridge to Fredericksburg, which is about 60 miles. My son-in-law, that son-in-law was driving, I told him, move over. <laughs> when we gassed up, I told him, oh, make sure you go bathroom, smoke a cigarette. I ain't stopping again till we need gas. The next time I stopped, we were in Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> So anyway, we got David out of boot camp. We had it home. I looked over, everybody dozing off, and I reached over and opened me up a cold Miller light. <laughs> Set the cool control on that big Buick at 100. I was almost in North Carolina, and I come up with a little right in the road, and they said, a joint, uh, South Carolina steady. I says, uh-oh. <laughs> now I didn't even bother to slack down. I knew he had me. Yep. Whether he was doing paperwork, he could have been taking a snowing tree seat. David's <laughs> raincoat hung up. That wasn't all traffic. Nope. I figured something. Must, he must said he was going to pick us up with a sponge anyway. <laughs> I dropped about to eighty. We left Paris Island at. One o'clock in the afternoon, I sat in Baltimore, Maryland, nine o'clock at night. <laughs> I was making some time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I wasn't going to say nothing because I wanted to get far away from that place as possible, <laughs> as quick as possible. So <laughs> I tell you, you were lucky. You had us come down. When yeah. I graduated boot camp, I rode a bus out of Trenton, New Jersey up to Bethel. Yep. And my folks didn't have had the money yeah and my brothers and sisters all had were working just making me and i joke about it but to this day i i i love the fact or how everything went down that time that you never said anything about me that you were coming down or anything like that <laughs> because you know for me to say you know what this is my graduation this is for me nobody's here i'm gonna get on a bus i'm gonna go back and i'm gonna have some fun and then to see you know, you're down there and everything else, like you came all the way down there for me and everything else that right there took me from like almost a low to a high instantly, you know? Well, if you'd have seen the look on your face <laughs> when you turned around and see me standing there, when I says, ain't you going to speak to me? Yep. Your jaw dropped and your eyes get big. You couldn't believe this right. old man was standing there. Yeah. Looking at you. Yeah, I was at, at that moment that you're talking about. I was talking to my brother because obviously, like I said, he's he sore, he stood out like a sore thong because he was wearing my clothes. I'm like, I know that shirt, I own that shirt, you know. And uh, 
I was talking to my brother and, and that's what I'm saying by like a low to a high. Cause my brother was there and I was kind of like, I didn't really care to see him. I was like, why are you here? You know, like, do I have to pay for your bus ticket to pay on the way back too? Cause <laughs> that, that's, that's just the way he is. And, and then when, once you said that and I turned around, I was just like, holy shit, <laughs> like, like everything started hitting me. I'm like, I made it through it. You know, I did exactly what you, you told me to do. You know, you're said, Hey, you got to push through all of it. I had the shin splint. So I was there for a little bit longer than, than most people, but you know, I, I made it through it and, uh, definitely made me who I am today. And, well, I'll tell you something. It was a while there that I told your grandmother, come home from work one night and she said, you hear anything from David? Mm-hmm. No, I haven't heard anything. Up days went by and I come home. You hear anything from David? No. She said, what are you worried about? I said, well, you know, we ain't heard anything. And I don't know if something happened. He, either he, he quit the Marine Corps or he's hurt. I said, and if he just walked out of the Marine Corps, he probably scared to face me. <laughs> Knowing what I told him when I went in, I said, and then I come home old night or two later and she says, or she called me because I was out in New York driving truck. Yep. She called me and says, oh, I got a letter from Dave and he got shin splint yep. and he can't write. He don't, they don't let him write that much. Yep. And I said, yeah, he don't want to write that much. <laughs> no, no. At that time I was, I was actually definitely going through a hard time. I was in boot camp. I had a ticket to get out. But I needed to, I needed to push through it, and I and ultimately, obviously, I did push through it, and I don't regret my decision w- whatsoever. But you know, I was going through a hard time. I was like, I didn't want to openly be, hey, you know, I got shin splints because I didn't want to lead you on saying, you know, loading you up for, for you to to write back to me say, hey, listen, just come back home. You got shin splints. It, you know, that's that's an injury. You know, that's not your fault. I didn't want to get that letter. I wanted to remember you saying, you know, if you go down there, you have to push through it. I don't care what happens. You got to put everything beside. It's not about you anymore. It's your brothers and sisters. And that helped me get through PCP and everything else and got back to Kilo Company. And then I was able to finish my, my tour, I guess you can call it, down a boot camp. But I see, when I came back from Korea, I smoked heavy in Korea. Yeah. And I didn't smoke non-filters. I either smoked. <laughs> Came on Palm Island, Lucky Strike, and I was smoking anywhere from a cotton, usually a cotton a week to two cottons a week. Yep. Because I was driving truck at night and night and then drinking and chasing them little oriental <laughs> girls around. <laughs> Came back from Korea and I had to take a PT test. And like I say, I probably, I think I was about 22 years old. Yep. The average age in Vietnam was 18 to 20. Yep. Well, I couldn't run. I couldn't breathe. Yep. Down in Fort Houston, Virginia, I'm trying to take PT, PT test, and I passed out because I couldn't breathe. Yep. They took me over to the hospital in an ambulance, checked my lungs and stuff, and the doctor came out, and he told me, he said, you're in the first stages of emphysema. Yep. Says if you don't quit smoking right now, you'll be dead in ten years. Yeah. 
and I had to fight to stay in. I wanted to finish my time. And they were going to put me out on a medical discharge. And I worked. I still couldn't run the mile fast, but being a heavy equipment mechanic, finally they told me being an E5 heavy equipment mechanic, my motor officer said, sit down here at the desk and take your PT test. He <laughs> said, if we don't want to lose you, you're one of the best mechanics we got. Yeah. So I sat down at the test. And I just barely squeaked by on that PT test to stay in. <laughs> I, well, you know, mm-hmm. I knew I had passed out and went to the hospital. So I didn't want to make it look like I was 100%. Yeah. So after that, they didn't really push the PT test anymore. Right. And we had some guys that was overweight and that, that Shouldn't have been in anyway, but they were in. And they were doing their job, but they were overweight. And then they went all volunteer. <laughs> and us older soldiers didn't like that. If we were used to high and tight, as the Marine Corps says, the Army was the same yep. way. Have your hair high and tight. Clean clothes every day. Yep. Clean shaving and that. But we were getting guys in that, and all the recruiters were doing was filling their numbers so they wouldn't have to come off recruiting. That's right. And we would get, I had three guys in my squad that couldn't read and write. So how can you send a guy to do a job and he can look up information in a technical manual if he can't read? Right, exactly. They wanted to send me Germany. I just married your grandmother and I had four stepchildren. Yep. And I didn't want to go, and I was an acting staff sergeant at the time. And I told him, I says, if my wife and kids can go, I'll go to Germany in a heartbeat. And they said, no, there's no housing over there for your family. I'm not going. And I says, if you guarantee me 12 years at Fort Houston, I'll stay and retire. Oh, we can't do that. (laughs) <laughs> so they sent me see this captain talk to him. He looked at me and he says, you can't get out of the army. You're a career soldier. And I looked right at him and I said, my ETS is April the 25th, 19, er, 1975. I said, don't you be looking for me April the 26th because you won't find me on that post. <laughs> I says, I'm getting out. Yep. I says, I've had it. I've had it with this new modern army. I says, I'm getting out. Well, now I've taught some other older soldiers or younger soldiers, but they've retired out. Now you almost got to have a college education to get in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's, for the Marine Corps for a while there, there, were, there was a lot of restrictions on who can actually go in. You know, Marine Corps is famous for the whole... If you can tell colors, you can go in. You know, the, right. the standards are very low. But for a while there, the Marine Corps, there was, they were doing stop, you know, they weren't doing promotions and stuff like that. Like my buddy, um, I mentioned him about him in uh, episode one, and we're just going to call him Eret. At this point now in his career, he's gunny, and he's looking to go higher. And, you know, he doesn't know if he wants to stay in the field or go paperwork-wise, so if master sergeant or first sergeant. But anyways, 
So he's he's still into it and everything else, but he he's been a lifer forever, and he almost got kicked out because he was he was a staff sergeant for so long that and and the MOS that he's in, they were gonna kick him out because he was a staff sergeant for so long. He wasn't on the board yet. See, they told me at Fort Hillstead if I didn't get my GED in a certain length of time, that they're gonna put me out because I only had an eighth grade education. Yeah. And I went over education center. I took two classes over there. One was in English. Yep. Because that's always been a hard subject for me. And the other one was in math, which was another kind of a hard subject. It's even worse nowadays. And <laughs> I went and took my GED, and I I passed that. Uh, you know, if I'd have had one, two more points on English, I could have got got a Vermont high school diploma, but the GED is just as good. Yep. And then I, while I was in, I also took a couple of courses. Uh, I took a welding course, college welding. Well, it was a welding course. You got some college credits for. Yep. And then they had down at Fort Houston. This was all volunteer with nothing that. Nobody told you had you had to do it or anything. It was just an all volunteer. It was a test. We were working with a nuclear on testing for nuke. If it was a nuclear bomb, yeah, we had guide counter and stuff, and we had other equipment. And I can't get into a lot of it because it's still classified. For testing your water and stuff, and I, some of the stuff we had is still under classification, but I volunteered for that, and and believe it or not, I really enjoyed working with that stuff, and I learned so much yeah. about nuclear warfare, and it will scare the hell right out of you. Oh, absolutely! And we had pictures. We had shows. We did take a trip out uh, out west there where they they tested the bomb yep. that they used in uh, World War Two on. Yeah. And they and at that time they were telling the soldiers and stuff that were working out there that the radiation wouldn't bother them. Ninety eight percent of them soldiers died from that radiation. Yeah. At a young life. And with the Geiger counter, we could still pick up high high amount of that yeah. radiation. And you say, well, why would you enjoy doing that? I'm not a physic. I'm just a dumbass Vermont mechanic. Yep. But it was something. Out of your element. Out of my element. And it, I've always kind of enjoyed watching these science shows and stuff. Yeah. And I can say, well, I that's something I can I know something about. That's right. And then when the Cold War ended, they were gonna hand out Cold War medals. Yeah. Till the government found out it was gonna cost them two point five million dollars. <laughs> no, trillion dollars yeah. to give every Cold War soldier a medal. Yeah. That was to make it and then mail it to them. 
Oh, that kind of ended diet right there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But one thing I was proud to see on Memorial Day yep. was that World War II pilot, the Muskogee Air Pilot. Yep. I was glad to see him be honored and get the Medal of Honor that he deserved. Yeah. That was one of the things a lot of people don't understand, David. That in World War Two, one World War Two, and Korea, and some in Vietnam, yeah, the minorities in the service, a lot of them didn't get the recognition, the medals and stuff of what they did because the officers did not recognize them as equals. To the, to the white soldiers. Right. And the Indians were treated the same way. Yeah. And I feel that if a person goes in the military, they do their job that they're supposed to do, race should have nothing to do with the recognition they get. Exactly. And, and I absolutely 110% agree with you. And even in episode one, I was talking about, you know, I don't care what uniform you're wearing or who you are, where you came from, where you're going to go in life if you're plugging my wound. But it, it is absolutely sad that we have a, a situation where that's still in effect today and it's 2020. You know, I mean, you're, you're, you served in 1966 to 1975. So, and your biggest thing was the community out there and everybody from, from, from the homeland were spitting on you when you're coming home and everything else. And nowadays we're having it. So where everybody's spitting on you, not for what you did, not for what you, what you are or anything like that, but just where your family's from. So, I mean, it's kind of like a, a, a turntable type of thing. Right. That's a hundred percent. Right. Now, you know, I work train first station. Yeah. We got a lot of vets, military people coming in there. We got air force, Marine, Yep. Navy, yep. Army, and they all know I wear my U.S. Army veterans hat. Yeah, I'm proud to wear it. Yep. And we uh, we go back and forth. Yeah. You're like you and I do, damn swabby, dumbass Marine. Yeah, you know, friggin' Army guy, you running a train for a state and ain't got brains enough to pull a piss out of his boot, you know, stuff like that. It's all good, clean. Well, yeah, like I, I'll call you up to borrow your truck to move my my four wheeler or something like that for the day. And you're like, oh, I guess the army will just barrel, bail out the Marine Corps again. <laughs> yeah, I call you and can you bring my house key over? <laughs> oh, the damn the Marine got bail the army out, but. The camaraderie between yep. the court, between the two of us is great. Yep. I hold a lot of respect for you. You've earned my respect. I don't give respect out. You have to earn it. Well, a lot of the respect that you give to me is because who you are today and who you are for the past 37 years for me. You definitely have a lot of, sh a lot of stake on who I am today what I see, what I do, and how I am for my family. So, I mean, the respect goes back and forth. Uh, yeah, and another thing, 
you know, if you come to me for advice, I ain't going to sugarcoat it for right. you. And that's what's happening too much with the young people now. The older generation, my generation, wants to sugarcoat it for the grandchildren or their children. Yep. And it's not a rosy world out there. It's not everything if 100% going to be so nice and that. It's right. not no. that way. We got to start standing up and letting our younger generation know that we are there to help them, not belittle them, not run them down. But right. sometimes we have to put our arm around them and say, look, you screwed up. You yep. don't have to scream and holler. I did some screaming and hollering, don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah. But you don't have to scream and holler because they made a mistake. But you've got to sometimes say, hey, look, it's time. And this is what my old platoon sergeant used to say. Grab your ears firmly and yank your <laughs> head out of your ass. Yep. And that's what we got to start doing with some of our younger generation. Yep. I'm dead set, dead set against the pot shops. It's yep. just a political way to make money. I'm dead set against them because they are gonna, they are ruining our younger generation. That's right. We're getting towards the end of our show here, and I just wanted to say that I do know that you do do a lot for the church. Um, now you guys do like a uh, it's like a week thing, camp thing that you go for PTSD. Well, I'm I'm sorry to say that this year. Up in New Hampshire, they have canceled the PTSD training. I've been two years in a row, and it's a, it's all based on religion. Yep. And it, it's a great experience. Or it, had, it was a great experience for me. And I went through a very hard time when your grandmother died. Yep. I know you did. And at the church, we have a... And it's online now on Thursday night. We have a set free. Okay. That's for anybody. You, you don't have have addiction. You can come and listen or come online and listen to it. Okay. You I'll, can, I'll get that link from you and I'll put it in the description down there. So uh, it doesn't matter if you're, what you're saying is it doesn't matter if you have an addiction or anything like that or where you are, where you're from, or anything like that. I'll put the link down below in the description, so that way anybody can click on it and they they can get right right into that. They can get into that. My brother's a deacon at the church. He's got the set free program started. I got involved in it when Greg Polly, he's now a master sergeant in the Air Force. His wife had a Humvee blown out from under her. She's yep. got her feet very hurt, and Greg served over there in Afghanistan and he been he's up there now in rank and he knows a lot about the PTSD and that. Yep. And that set free program really helped me a lot when when my wife passed away. Yeah. And it's based on religion. I'm not gonna sit here and tell you it ain't. Right. Based on religion and it's really 
I I stand behind the program because I think it's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. What you guys do, I mean, the like I said, you guys go and you do a PTSD, re, re, we'll call it a retreat, because that's kind of what it is. It, that's what it is. Yeah, and that's that's great. And I mean, one of these one of these years, I'll I'll go with you. Um, but I have a hard time because I want to leave my seat open for somebody that actually has PTSD. I mean, I don't claim to have it or anything like that. And I understand what you're saying that like I can still go and help with other people and stuff like that. But um, well, our church if want to. Get a PTSD program started at the church, and with this coronavirus and that, yep. there's going to be a bigger need for it because of you people that are laid off out there. Yeah, you be it's beginning to get to you. Yeah, things are building up. Some of you are not getting paid. Yeah, and. Things at home is starting to build up on you and that. Yeah, I mean, you got right now, you got, uh, you know, they're talking about end of July, what, another week or so? And the $600 is going to go away from everybody on unemployment. And then you got, you know, you got companies that used to work for back in March and they had to close because of Corona. And now they can't reopen because they went bankrupt because the banks still want their money and everybody else still want their money. So they can't open up. So now you have no job to go to. And you're also looking at it, you can't get a job unless places are open. Nobody's hiring because nobody's open. Well, especially with you young, you the younger people with families, and you get bought your car or a house and that, yep. you're struggling to make ends meet as it is. And believe me, I know, because when I get out of the Army, I went work for $5 an hour. Yeah. And that was a going wage. Yeah. And I can see a need for the PTSD for the families out there. Yeah. And another thing it really sets heavy on me is to when a young couple because things get so bad is when they get a divorce. Yeah. And then the young people, the teenagers night. I see teenagers and stuff out there on the street and they're doing things they shouldn't be doing. Yeah. And I think to myself, what is gonna become in the next twenty or twenty five years of this country. Right. And another thing we better watch real close is that election coming up this year. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm not going to get into politics. But yeah. I'm I'm scared to death of what's going to happen. Yeah, I'm scared to death of what's going to happen in another four years in 2024. <clears throat> That's when I'm going to be scared. You know, right now it's yeah, we're not going to get into politics. So no, because you're going to get your grandfather wound up. <laughs> yeah, we'll have we always have those conversations anyways. And uh, but for right now is you know you're absolutely right. You know, PTSD. PTSD is out there. It's it's an issue. And a lot of you think, well, I didn't do wartime or or I didn't do, you know, I didn't see anything that should give me PTSD. Listen, PTSD is is nothing to laugh about. If you have it, you need to go get help. All right. So Look, that's just something I'm going to put out there. Yep. Your police officers, your firefighters, 
Oh, your yeah. tow truck operators, your EMTs, your doctors, your nurses that work with people, they see these accidents. They see these people mutilated in an accident. Yeah. The tow truck driver pulls up there. He got to pull a car up to a bank so that the corner can say, yeah, he's dead. All this works on after a while, it starts getting to these people. Absolutely. And we need, when you see that police officer standing on the street corner, roll your window down and holler, hey, thanks for your job. Thankless job. You think. And it means a lot when you tell, you see an old veteran wearing a hat or, or somebody you know is a veteran, stop and say, hey, thanks for your service. Yep. So you see that EMT worker, he comes to your house to help your wife, your mother, your children. Yep. You say, hey, I really appreciate the job that you're doing. Yeah. Just saying hello to somebody means a lot to them. Absolutely. Or I mean, saying, hey, I'm old school. Thank you. I say, hey, I appreciate what you do. I look at it like this. You, you old fellas, you, you know, you served 66 through 75. All right. You fought in Vietnam. You gave me a country to fight for 39 years later. You gave me that country to fight for, for what you did in Vietnam, set me up to fight OIF. All right. And the cold war and everything else like that. Just the same as well as for you and your shoes, Men and women have fought World War One, World War Two, and all that. They gave you a country to fight for, right? And so, yeah, absolutely. If you see another veteran out there, and I think I said in episode one, if you see a veteran on the side of the road with a flat tire, stop and help him. You know, especially if he's an uh, an elderly veteran. He gave you the re. He gave you. You were you were drafted. I volunteered. There's no difference between me and you because I think if you weren't drafted, you would have volunteered anyways. But at or the end been, of, or been volunteered, but the judge <laughs> you would have been voluntold. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, you were told you had to do something, and you did it to the best of your guys' abilities, and you came home to everybody spitting on you and everything else. And 39 years later, those people that are spitting on you, their kids or their grandkids are actually joining volunteering to join right well i got one little story and then we'll yep. cut this off yep. i was in the big y one night okay the lady standing in front of me she had two small children she had a gallon of milk a loaf of bread and a dozen of eggs and it come up i forgot she was like a dollar and 20 cents short or something right. and the cashier was giving her a hard time over it. Yep. And she said, look, my husband just deployed unannounced to Iraq. Says, and I haven't even gone two weeks. I haven't even gotten an allotment check yet. Yeah. And he had a, she told me afterwards, he had a MOS that was very high and they really needed yep. him. Yeah. Well, I pulled up my wallet and I threw two, $2 down on the counter. 
I said, I'll take care of that. Yeah. I pulled out. I had some cash on me, and I said, here, $50. Yeah. I said, that will help you out some. You'd have thought i give that lady a million-dollar check. Yeah. Oh, probably six or seven months went by, and I meant to big Y one day, and this, this uh, soldier come up to me, had his uniform on, and he was E7. Yeah. And his wife was with him with the kids. She, she turned around and she said, that's the man that helped me out. Yeah. He come up and he said, sir, I owe you $50. I said, for what? Yeah. You know, five, six months, I forgot about it. Yeah, absolutely. He, yeah. he says, when my wife was short on money and I was, I headed out for Afghanistan, we didn't even have a chance to get to the bank uh, or anything. Yeah. And she didn't have access to the account. Her name wasn't on the account yet. We yeah. had just got married and only been married, I think, said about three months. Yeah. And they were just getting things situated. You give my wife $50 to help her out. Yeah. I said, I don't want your money. Yeah. I said, sir, I said, Sergeant, I said, I did eight and a half years in the Army. Right then, she was. She needed some help. Yeah. I said, "Just remember, if you can help somebody out, pass it along." That's it. And he he shook my hand, and I and I felt so proud walking out of there that she remembered who I was and what I did for. Her. Well, it's because nowadays, unfortunately, it got to a situ. It is that a situation now where. If you were standing the next person in line of that, that female with a bunch of kids that was a dollar something short, nowadays people will actually take their phones out, record the interaction between that, that mother and the and the person working the register and laugh at her. You know, yeah. they'll laugh at her. They'll say, Hey, look at this girl, you know, she's you know, she's out there willy nilly having three kids, but you know, she's trying to come out here and she can't and trying to buy things that she can't afford, like get a real job, get a real life. And they don't even know who she is or anything like that for you to take the time and to listen to her, her story, believe her story and give her the two dollars. $2. I mean, what the $2 that was a stepping stone. Cause you gave her the $2. She was, I, you know, it sounds like she was greatly appreciated of the $2. So at that point, which made you believe that this is actually a true situation here and that it's not somebody that's trying to rob people, but so you gave her another $50 and that's what we need out there. We need more people to more or less come together and don't make fun of people. Don't put them on TikTok. Don't put them on Snapchat and all that other stuff and make fun of them. People that are hurting are hurting for one reason or another, whether it's their decision or not. Well, I come to the conclusion I'm 73 years old. Yep. I've been through a lot. I've seen a lot. I've worked hard all my life. And I finally got to the point in my life where I'm, I'm not rich, but I'm comfortable. Yeah. And I've turned, turned my life around from an alcoholic yep. to quit drinking. I go to Calvary Baptist Church or then I go Thursday night to set free. I do it to harass my brother. Right. 
and I go <laughs> Sunday morning and that. I've made a lot of good friends at that church and yep. that. And if I'm going to sit here and profess to be a Christian, there's times I've got to do the Christian thing. That's right. And being that military night, if I see a fellow military person having a problem, I'm going to step up and do what I can to help them out. That's right. And that's the way it's got to be. We've got to get back to the basics. As you know, Papa, that I became recently became an ambassador for Mission 22 in the state of Massachusetts. And since then, you know, I get to talk to people, um, not so much on the podcast level, because a lot of people, a lot of veterans don't want to put their story out there and everything else because of the way people look at them. You know, things that happened to them, things that didn't happen to them, whatever happens, you know, they don't want to be put out there. But reality is in the year 2019, we had 346 veteran commit suicide that are on active duty. They're still wearing their uniforms when they committed suicide. You know, they got 155 reserves committed suicide. Uh, I've done some looking into it. Vietnam veterans, the, 20, the last number I had, it was 22 veterans a day committing suicide nationwide. Yeah. Some of them were Vietnam, some Afghan and veterans and that. And when you get a phone call at two o'clock in the morning from a loved one, I don't care if it's a veteran or not. Right. And that person say they're going to commit suicide. And I had this conversation today at breakfast with a guy. That, that individual says, David, I'm going to commit suicide. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. You say, well, call me back at 8. I don't want to talk right now. You can't do that. No, absolutely not. you got to stay on the phone with that individual. Your wife has a cell phone. You ne- if you feel you need to call 911 and tell them you're on the phone with John Doe at 17 Brisket Street. Yep. He's talking about committing suicide. You need to get somebody over there. Yeah. Because if you hang up on that individual, you have just signed a death warrant. Yeah. And you don't know what's bothering them. You, you let them talk. And uh, even if you go over and sat with them, That's right. if you go over and sat with them, take somebody with you. So if you got to go to the bathroom, they are not not sitting there by themselves. Right. That's one of the things I learned at PTSD, and we cannot give up on them. No. And if you're that person that's making the phone call, but you neglect to make the phone call due to the fact of you don't want to actually call your friends because you're, you're a fear for what they'll actually think of you, you can call the hotline number, all right? So that's 1-800-273-8255. You can press number one. And you can talk to some a total stranger. Or like I said before, if you're in a room full of people and you're having some bad thoughts, not suicide-wise, but let's say you're, you've had enough of where our nation is today to now you're thinking about going on the almighty rant or the almighty show where you know, you're taking firearms and you want to hurt a bunch of people because of the way everything is. You can text this number. It's 838-255. 
All right. So you can either call the number 1-800-273-8255, press 1, or you can text 838-255. And if you want to become an ambassador like myself for Mission 22, or if you want to just call and and find out or or just go on their website at mission22.com, great events coming up. Go on there, see where they are in your area. But if you want to talk to somebody there too, their direct number is 503 908-8508. And don't be afraid to make a call. Do not be afraid to make that call because we can't afford to lose the veterans. We can't afford to you lose one of you young people out there. Right. And some old fat like me, you might say, yeah, you don't know what it's all about. I almost committed suicide when my wife passed. Yep. I was lonely, and I had a, this is God's honest truth, I had a 2006 GM pickup, and David can verify it. She oh, yeah. was loaded heavy with tools. Oh, yeah. I had the tree picked out, and I knew exactly how fast I'd have to do to hit that tree. Yep. Well, the devil told me, go ahead, it'll be all over for you. Lord looked at me and says, you idiot. What about your grandchildren and your children? They get buried their grandmother, yeah. and they know that they know that you did it intentionally. Yeah. And like I say, through the church, through David and that, I, get, I worked my way through it. Yeah. Uh, but don't be afraid to make a call. Young people, we're there to help you. I mean, we, we're there. All the numbers David give you, there are people there willing to listen. Yep. It might seem like it's real bad at the time, but it, once you commit suicide, it's all over. That's right. And just remember, it's like throwing a pebble into, the, into a water puddle. When that pebble hits the water, it sends out ripples. It affects everybody. That's right. And I'm going to leave you with a word of advice now from an old man that come from my mother. She told me one day, she said, cheer up, son, things could get worse. I cheered up and they got worse. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to leave you listeners with the quote of the show. Don't name a cow that you plan to eat. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening, listening to the show and stay tuned for the next upcoming shows. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom.